right. Well, good morning, everyone. How we doing? Thank you. Uh, it's so good to be back. If you're here and you've come for the first time in the last five weeks and you're like, what is welcome back and who is this dude um, up here with the bandage on his forehead? Um, <clears throat> that's because uh, my wife and I, Rachel, who is just up here, uh, we were on kind of like a mini sabbatical, if you will, for five weeks, um, honestly, just to do some soul care. Uh, to get refueled, it was kind of an exhausting last three years, just to be honest. Um, and so we feel amazing. I feel amazing. <clears throat> and uh, so a couple, I just want to honestly give some people thanks. Um, one, uh, Pastor Brock kind of led the ship while I was gone, so thank you, Brock. I have no idea where he's at. Back there. Thank you, Brock. So give him some encouragement if you see him. Uh, Kelly, our vice president of the board, handled all the organizational stuff behind the scenes, which is a lot. Um, and then, so cool, I've heard so many good stories of just um, all the different sermons. And so what a gift for the bridge. Not all churches have this. But to have, honestly, lots and lots of options of people who can preach. And so Brock, Dan, Warren, Tracy, um, give them a round of applause too. <clears throat> so job well done. Thank you so much. Uh, enough of me and all that. It's time uh, to dig into scripture, something that I've missed for five weeks doing. So uh, kind of actually sad news, but this actually be our last morning in the biography of Mark. Um, so we're going to kind of conclude things this morning. We only got 11 chapters through. It took us seven months. We started in January. Um, but that is because, as Rachel kind of alluded to, next Sunday we are really getting into this mode. Um, I'm calling it kind of like a fall launch but we really believe that God is on the cusp of doing something great. And so we want to take four or five weeks to review our mission, our vision, and to really launch us in uh, back to this fall season. So if you're thinking about maybe going doing brunch on a Sunday or whatever the next five weeks, don't. Make sure you're here. Don't ever miss, but especially these next five weeks, it's going to be good. And so now for the last time in a while, let's dig in. Mark chapter 10. Uh, page 690, 691 of the free orange Bibles underneath your chairs. We're going to be in Mark 10, starting at verse 32, and we'll go through verse 45. Let me read God's word for us. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside them, and told them what was going to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later he will rise. Remember this context. Um, it's not kind of the climax of it, but it matters for what we're getting into now. Right after he said this, verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, and by the way, this is an audacious question to ask Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, we want you to do for, for us whatever we ask. Okay. Jesus, completely emotionally secure, calmly just says, okay, wh wh what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, 
Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And then Jesus says, uh, yeah, you don't really know what you're asking. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And boldly they say, yes, we can. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, that's the rest of the the, uh, the 12, the disciples, they became indignant with James and John. And here's, here's the meat of this passage. Jesus called them together and said this, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here's the scene. Jesus and his followers, as it says at the very beginning, they are making their way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is our equivalent as Americans as Washington, D.C. It's their first century Jewish political capital. It's where the king is. It's where all politics go down. And Jesus and his 12 are making their way there because Jesus is going to do his triumphant entry. Um, The very next chapter, literally a couple words after this, chapter 11, is his triumphant entry. It's what um, all churches throughout the world on Palm Sunday preach on. Mark 11, actually Pastor Brock did this um, in April for Palm Sunday, this very passage. And so the context of this, and it's so important, um, is Jesus entering this capital political city, and he's going to make it known that he is Israel's Messiah, he's Israel's king, which means he's king of the world. So this is actually a very political move. And so his disciples are naturally getting ready for this, kind of like campaign season. And so you have these famous brothers, James and John, their nickname, um, it's not used here, but they're called the Sons of Thunder. They're bold brothers, and they ask Jesus in verse 35, I'll read it again, teacher, they said, we want you to do whatever we ask. Again, that's a bold question. And Jesus, okay, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they reply, let one of us sit at your right and let one of us sit at your left in your glory. Here's why they ask this question. Imagine if your good colleague, your family member, a friend, co-worker, whoever, whatever, is, is running for president of the United States of America. And they end up winning, or it looks like they're going to win. What's a natural thing in that process? If, if you're a part of that network, well, it means this president has to pick their cabinet. Now, most people will say the two most important cabinet positions in the U.S. are the vice president and the secretary of state. Kind of the, the number two and number three of the president. 
And so it'd be like if, if you and your friends, whoever else around this, this presidential figure, start kind of lobbying, hey, man, like, do you remember that one time? Like, I bought you that really nice Ruth Chris dinner. Like, bro, put me in. Secretary of State. I have no experience, but put me in. It's usually how politicians work. That was a joke, but anyways. <clears throat> and uh, so James and John, they start lobbying Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you're going into Jerusalem. We got a favor to ask of you. We want to sit on your left and sit on your right. We want to be your number two and your number three in your ruling kingdom. We got your back. We'll we'll, we'll put out the haters. We'll make sure everyone bows down to you. We got you. Choose us. Number two, number three. And Jesus is like, You have no idea what you're asking for. And it's kind of like he really says, do you still, like still, like 10 chapters, like years of ministry, do you still not get how the kingdom advances? Remember, I read for you the beginning of this passage, verses 33 to 34. Jesus tells his crew, his squad, For the third time that Mark records for us, he tells us that the Messiah is going to be crucified, spit on, mocked, flogged. He's going to be a crucified, suffering, dead Messiah. And for them, that goes in one ear and out the other. They had no conception, this is hard for us to grasp, but they had no conception of a crucified Messiah. For them, the Messiah was triumphant, victorious, was going to march into Jerusalem and kill and slay Rome. No such thing as a crucified, suffering Messiah. That's not a king. That's not a president. That's not how a ruler acts. That would be a servant, not a leader. So Jesus tells James and John, he kind of uses this this cryptic language, and he says, actually, hey, by the way, you're going to drink the cup of suffering, and you're going to be baptized with, with my baptism. In other words, what he's saying is, you will be overwhelmed, and you will go into death. As one commentator puts, like, you're going to be plunged, baptized, you're going to be plunged into calamity. Jesus isn't just going to be sprinkled with suffering. He's going to be submerged in it. And this was completely opposite of what James and John thought and wanted. Because they're wanting, by them asking for a number two, number three position, they're wanting glory, they're wanting authority, they're wanting power, they're wanting authority, they're wanting control. They're wanting greatness, just like Rome just like the other Gentile rulers. And Jesus, as he ever is, shockingly, radically, and you have, this is radical, he flips the power script on them, and he redefines what it means to be great and to have influence. Verses 42 through 45 sum up and are the climax of this passage. Let me reread it for us. I'm going to intentionally reread this passage a lot this morning. We have to get this. 
Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, Rome, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, he's contrasting, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, the true King of kings, the King of the earth, the prime minister of creation, he didn't come to dominate, he didn't come to legislate laws. He didn't come, you know, forcing you to bow down to him. Jesus Christ, the King of kings, didn't come with the sword in his hand, slaying his enemies. Actually, his disciples do that before his crucifixion, and he heals the guy's ear. Jesus doesn't come yelling and criticizing and trolling people on Instagram and Twitter. Jesus came to serve. And the way he served, and there's no better, greater definition of service than this, is he gave his life for you on the cross. Now, before you clap, this one may make you not clap. Ann Lee Stanley, in his book, Not In It to Win It, writes this. this. I had to close the book after I read this and pray. We want to be prophets calling out evil and calling down curses. We want to be warriors of Christ, bathed in the blood of our enemies, figuratively speaking. We want the nations to tremble. We want to be ancient Israel, minus the inconvenient dietary restrictions, retaking the promised land. Here it is. What we don't want to be is followers of Jesus. That requires us going to the back of the line. Can I just read that again? We don't want to be followers of Jesus because that would require us going to the back of the line. I hope that stings. It should. Because see, at the core of this conversation is this question. How are followers, not believers of Jesus, I'm talking about followers. We got to make a difference there. Lots of people in America believe in Jesus, but I'm talking about people who actually follow the rabbi's footsteps. How do followers of Jesus influence others for the kingdom of God? How does Jesus' kingdom, how does it advance in a world and a secular culture that doesn't align with our beliefs? How do we lead, and let me say it real quick, anybody who influences anyone is a leader. So if you're a parent, you are a leader because you influence your kids for good and bad. If you are a teacher, you are a leader because you influence students. If you work at a business, a corporation, you influence your colleagues, your customers. Everyone is a leader because part of being a leader is influence. So how how do we as Christians, how do we influence, lead, engage, and interact with our culture as kingdom reps? That is ultimately the question in this passage. Um, James Davison Hunter, he's a, uh, a Christian professor at the University of Virginia. You can Google him if you want. He came out with this landmark book 12 years ago. It was called um, To Change the World. And it was all about how Christians for years, for decades, have tried to change the world. 
And he said there are three basic postures, uh, three different methods that Christians have used to influence culture, to interact with it, um, to make culture Christian, um, to kind of win it over, if you will, and I don't even like that language to begin with. But the first way, I think this is actually what James and John do in this passage. So Hunter says, here's the first way that Christians historically have tried to influence culture. It's this, to be defensive against culture and seek to dominate it. Right? Dominate's the main word. Okay, we'll influence culture by dominating it for Christianity. So James and John here, that's what they're trying to do. Hey, Jesus, we want your number two, number three position. We want to be VP, Secretary of State, so that we can have glory, dominion, authority, and power over all this area. That's what they're asking for. They're asking for power. They want to dominate them. They want to war against Rome. They want to take over. And so in this posture, the idea is that we will... We'll make Christians by controlling and dominating them. That's how we'll take our land for Christ, is we'll put political laws into work and we'll make people obey. Well, the problem with that is Jesus says no. So Jesus says, that's not the way my kingdom advances. He's like, actually, you're going to drink a cup of suffering and you're going to be overwhelmed with calamity. You're not going to dominate. This is what Jesus says, not so with you. Actually, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Can we just recognize the... Jesus didn't come to dominate. He came to serve. So Jesus doesn't agree with the first approach. All right, what's the second one, Hunter? Second one, a way that people try to influence culture. This may seem odd at first, but it's this. To seek purity from culture and withdraw from it entirely. Now, it seems weird, but some people genuinely think, and there have been movements like this, um, We don't want to be influenced by culture. We don't want to be stained by it. So we're going to separate ourselves, get really clean and holy and pure, because everyone else is, of course, irreligious, unholy, and bad. And then our holiness will grow, and then we'll end up being in control. So at the time of Jesus, there was a group called the Essenes, and this is actually what they did. They went to the desert, and they they withdrew, because they thought all the Jewish people, all of Rome, man, those people are unholy, they're irreligious, they don't follow God, they don't live enough of a strict life, but we are so much better, we are so much more holy, we actually follow God's law, and so we're going to separate ourselves and be in our little holy huddle. Now, of course, there's no modern Christians that do that. If you've been around the church, there is a phrase called the holy huddle. And, and it actually is what I just described. Ooh. We don't want to be influenced by, by the worldly people. So we're, ju- we're just going to hang out with Christians. We have the truth. I, I, well, I don't want my kids to 
be stained by them. Oh, I, we're, I'm going to make sure that we keep ourselves over here. We do it all the time. And usually what people do with this is they twist John 18.36. Um, John 18.36 is, my kingdom is not of this world. But what Jesus is getting at in there is he says, my kingdom isn't of this world, but it sure is for this world. Or maybe you've heard the, don't be of this world, but not, or excuse me, I messed that up. Be in the world, but not of the world. See, if Jesus endorsed the second posture, I think here's how his statement would read. I think he would put, whoever wants to be great among you must separate from the irreligious. For the Son of Man didn't come, to be, didn't come to be served, but to separate himself. That's not what Jesus says. He says the Son of Man came to serve. If you're serving someone, you're right up in their grill. Third posture that Hunter talks about. Okay, maybe we just need to compromise with culture. Maybe we need to assimilate into it. Maybe we need to just become like culture. And the thought is this, let's not dominate culture, let's not withdraw, um, but maybe if we become like our surrounding culture, they'll like us. Oh, maybe if we become like our culture, we'll gain a hearing. Oh, if, if, we, if we become like them, they'll like us, they'll accept us, they'll listen to what we say, and then finally, then we can go do our Christian thing. That's how we win culture over. Well, another thing that James and John are doing here is they are copying and imitating how Rome rules. That's why Jesus says in verse 42, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Don't copy them, James and John. Don't buy into their method. Don't compromise with culture. Instead, and hopefully you get it by now, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first amongst you must be what? Slave. Our servant and slave, is that language of like domination? No, just making sure. So then the question becomes this. All right, we're not supposed to dominate culture. If we're not supposed to withdraw from culture, if we're not supposed to copy culture, what do we do? Any guesses? Serve. That's the answer. Serve. So what do we do? We serve others. We love others. What a novel concept from Jesus of Nazareth. So, here's what I want to ask you this morning. Man, I haven't sweat like this in five weeks. <laughs> my, my, my. Do you want to be great? Do you want to influence others for Jesus Christ? 
Do we want to see the kingdom of God invade the Chino Valley? Then we serve. If you want to be great, you got to serve. If you want to be first, you got to be last. The way we see the kingdom advanced is the way of the cross. Um, The great Tim Keller wrote this. The route to gaining influence is not taking power. Influence gained through power and control doesn't really change society. Why? It doesn't change hearts. I'm going to call you to a totally different approach. Be so sacrificially loving that the people around you who don't believe what you believe will soon be unable to imagine the place without you. They'll trust you because they see that you're not only out for yourself, but out for them too. And when they voluntarily begin to look up to you because of the attractiveness of your service and love you, you'll have real influence then. Because it'll be an influence that's given to you by others and not taken by you from others. And here it is. If at the very heart of your worldview is a man dying for his enemies, then the way you're going to influence in society is through service, not power and control. Man, will the American church get this? If at the heart of our faith is that, with a man like that telling us to worship him, don't come with swords or whatever your Instagram, Twitter, political take is, why don't you come with this? Just two weeks ago, um, Rachel and I, my wife, we stayed in the most stunning Airbnb that we've ever stayed in. And uh, I I don't have any pictures, but it was kind of like this little mid-century... Irish, idyllic studio on green prairie grass overlooking cliffs with the Atlantic Ocean hitting bluffs every second. It was like rural farm meat beach. It was absolutely stunning. Now, we didn't know this till we got there, but um, it was so rural <laughs> That like you couldn't even use your GPS on your, you couldn't use maps to get there because there's no service there. Now, we didn't know this though. And so let me introduce you to a guy named Kenneth. Kenneth was the owner of this property and Kenneth was a baller. Kenneth messaged us the day before we were supposed to go there, we stayed at, in a hotel one night just to get to this area before we drive, you know, 45 minutes in. And he just so happens to message Rachel on Airbnb and says, hey, uh, you know, I'm actually um, going to be at this restaurant in Cork, which is where we're staying. Why don't I just pick you up and I'll take you to my property? Wow. Never had an Airbnb host ask us that they'll pick us up. And I'm thinking like, oh man, is this going to be like an episode on Dateline three years from now? Like, the Lomans die in Ireland if we haven't found the bodies yet. <clears throat> this is why there's no GPS signal there, you know what I mean? <laughs> Who's Kenneth? Well, 
We tell him where we're at, we'll hotel, and he's like, oh, that's great. He's like, I'm actually the owner of the restaurant right next to it. And we're like, okay, yeah, Kenneth is a baller. <laughs> you know? Kenneth has leadership and influence in this area that we're staying, and he does. I walk into his restaurant, I'm like, hey, um, I'm Mark, I'm, I'm looking for Kenneth. Oh, you're looking for Kenneth, yeah, right this way. So Kenneth puts us in his Audi, two tourists, drives us 45 minutes to his majestic cottage, puts up with all of our questions about Ireland. Then Kenneth gives us a bottle of wine. We get into the flat. Oh, Kenneth gives us a carton of eggs from hens on his property that made the eggs. Whoa, ride, wine, eggs. Open up our stuff. I look out the window towards the ocean, and the corner of my right eye, I see a John Deere coming, and Kenneth is sitting on the John Deere, and he comes out to mow the grass for us. Then, the next day, Kenneth's like, hey, you guys have any laundry you need to do? I'm like, not wearing any clean boxers. Sorry if there's too much information. <clears throat> he said, well, why don't you come to my house and do your laundry? All right. We're like walking down this dirt road with like our backpacks full. We get in there. He's got a you know, glass of wine, classical music playing in the background. We use his laundry. And, oh, you know what? Actually, you guys, I'll, I'll change it out for you. I'll do the load for you. Okay, we get back. Next day, Saturday. Hey, guys, I'm going into town. And going into town is a big deal. It's a 45-minute drive. Um, I'm going to the grocery store. You guys need anything? And we're kind of like, man, do we ask for something? Do we not? Like, we don't want to be too much. Then, on our last day, Kenneth's like, hey, I arranged a taxi to come for you at a discounted rate. Kenneth served us. You know what Kenneth did? He left a lasting influence on Rachel and I. I have told so many people about that Airbnb. Hopefully he likes us. We are still talking about it weeks later. Why? Because Kenneth entered our life literally, physically, and served us. He didn't have to. He could have lorded it over us. Dude, I don't even want to know how much money he's got. He could have withdrawn. He didn't have to interact with us. Hey, here you go. Bye-bye. He didn't do that. He served us. Do you know that some of the most historic influencers in society have gained their influence through service? Let me give you two real quick. First one, Mother Teresa. You ever hear anybody talk bad about Mother Teresa? If you do, get rid of that person. (laughs) Second one, Martin Luther King Jr. started the Civil Rights Movement. That whole movement was built on service and nonviolence. And here's a stupid one for you, adult. Not stupid, but man, I'm telling you, Chick fil A owners. <laughs> Every time I go into Chick fil A and I get food, I know who the owner is because they're going out to the tables delivering the food. They're taking orders at the register. You wonder why Chick fil A's got such great customer services because they have phenomenal servant leadership. So here's the question In your marriage, in your friendships, with your coworkers, with your neighbors, do you serve them? Or you try to control people. 
Or, ooh, I don't like, oh, I'm going to withdraw. And this even plays out in your marriage, right? You, you get an argument, I'm just going, oh, I'm going to withdraw. What if in arguments, instead of withdrawing or being defensive, you served? The question is, how do we serve our society? And this changes the way you live and everything, not just with culture, but marriage, friendship, workplaces, schools, communities, and nations. This is the way of the kingdom. You know, we all talk about influencers now because of social media. Oh, who's an influencer? I want to be an influencer. We want platforms, we want attention, we want status. My question is, do you want service? Because Jesus says, you want influence? Serve. Let me somewhat end with Martin Luther King Jr. He said this. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relativity. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. Now, I know how the human heart is, because I know my own heart. And isn't there a temptation? Oh, so I can be influential if I serve. Oh, yeah, I'll serve so that I get influence. You see that? We all know people like that. Yeah, you're doing it for your name. Now, let's think about that. If you're serving others to become influential and great, are you really doing it for serving? No. So actually what you're doing is a selfish act, which is actually the opposite of what Jesus is saying. But watch your heart. That's what my heart wants to do. And Jesus is saying, actually, that's selfish. What we're talking about is a selfless heart. Well, Mark, how do I get that self? I want to be selfless. I really do, Mark. How do I get that selfless heart? You can only become selfless and a servant if your soul, if your heart is touched by the radical grace and greatest servant leader to ever lived, and that's Jesus Christ. If you want to be a, ser- a true servant who operates out of clean, pure, selfless motive and not manipulation and control, your soul has to come to grips with the cross. It's so fitting this morning. I mean, God just always does this. We take communion this morning. Um, first Sunday of the month is our tradition here at the bridge. Um, you should have this little thing. I don't know what it's called, but underneath your chair, it's got two tabs on it. And by the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what this is, you're not comfortable with it, that's totally cool. Like, so there is zero pressure obligation um, to partake in communion. And we really do mean that. Here, here's what communion means. The, the wafer, the bread, it, it symbolizes the broken body of Jesus. 
The grape juice, it symbolizes the poured out blood of Jesus for you. And this morning, I mean, it just seems so right that in taking the elements, we are remembering Mark 10.45. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man, Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for you. The greatest motivation for becoming a selfless person is knowing Jesus Christ came to serve you. When your heart wrestles with that and grasps that and receives that, you can serve with no selfish motivation. As MLK Jr. put, your soul is generated by love. I want my soul to be generated by love. Let me read for us our liturgy out of the scriptures for communion. I'll read out of Mark 14, 20 through, 22 through 24. You can open up the elements if you haven't already. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying this. Take it. This is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. May we eat this morning the bread and the cup, remembering that our Savior served us out of love so that we could serve the rest of the world in his love. May we eat together. You can put those just back underneath your seat, throw them in the trash can after the service. What we want to do now is, is what we always do, and that's respond to what the Holy Spirit is doing. God's presence is here. He is tugging right now in your heart. I don't know what he's saying, tugging, but what I do know is that God speaks, and so I just want to invite our prayer team up. These are safe people. They'll stand up here in the front of the room. You guys know this by now. We just want to invite you to come forward for prayer for anything. It could be about Mark 10 or it could have nothing to do with that. Maybe there's someone here who needs to get prayer for healing. Maybe you're dealing with anxiety. Maybe you're questioning God. We just, we just want to make space. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, someone mentioned a chapter out of Ezekiel this morning in pre-service prayer. It was a, it's a vision of dry bones in a valley. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like dry bones. And the way that chapter ends, the way that vision ends, is that the Spirit of God puts flesh on those bones and creates life. Maybe that's you this morning. What is God speaking to you? Spirit, 
reveal yourself to us. Show us your heart. Let's just take a couple seconds now for silence. We just want to make room for God to speak.